Hi everyone, I'm Dalen, founder and design educator at Curious Core. Welcome to our Working in UX Design podcast series, where we interview a UX design leader in the industry on their experience in this emerging field. We've had UX professionals from Grab, AirAsia, Google, and more join us previously, and we're bringing you more exciting interviews this year. Stay tuned for this week's interview with our special guest, who is working in UX design. Good day to everyone. This is Dalen over here, and welcome to another session of working in UX design.、Uh, I'll be your host for this. Session and today we have a very special guest. His name is Faisal, and he works currently at Line, which is one of the most popular apps for interpersonal communication in Korea and 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 in Thailand. Right?、Uh, am I correct on that, Faisal?、Uh, yes.、Um, essentially, in Southeast Asia, we have Japan and many many more. Yeah. Awesome. So, just to introduce a little bit more about our our guest today,、uh, Faisal actually has. Over thirteen years of experience, spanning working in digital agencies, e-commerce, as well as telecommunications, including working for DG in Malaysia, where he is actually from. And Faisal is a strong advocate of a research-first approach. He emphasizes the importance of making data-driven decisions and continuous design experimentation. So he's currently the UX design lead for the global commerce、uh, section and product for Line in Bangkok and Thailand, and he's actually joining us today from Bangkok in Thailand. And today we are actually going to learn a little bit more about his experience working overseas as a UX designer. So he's originally from Malaysia, and he has worked previously in Indonesia. And today he has worked is working in Thailand, so that's something we're going to discuss in great detail. At the same time, we're also going to discuss on the session topic itself, which is thinking deeper about user experience and its subconscious impact. So Faisal will be sharing some of his past work and how impact is actually measured.、Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about how he pushes his design or his team. In terms of achieving more impact in the work that they do, and last of all, we're gonna talk a little bit more about how can us as UXers get good jobs overseas, as well as negotiate our salaries overseas, because he is actually someone who has done it a couple of times. So we're really glad to have you today, Faisal. How are you today? Ah,、uh, thanks for that introduction. Yeah, I'm really good. First and foremost, I hope everyone's in good health. And having a lovely day. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So, what attracted you to first, you know, leave your family, leave your your job, and just kind of relocate your entire life to move to Indonesia? And you were given the opportunity to work for Indonesia telco called Smart Friend at that point in time. What was it about the opportunity that attracted you? I think the pushing motivator for me at a time. Or sort of what triggered me was、um, I was sold the vision and the big plan of the company where they wanted to venture into super app or building a super app, and you know we have a very strong population in Indonesia. I think、um, probably at the moment around two hundred and fifty million, right?、Uh, that was also a factor for me because、um, at a point of time that was in two thousand and nineteen, right, about four five years ago, that I wanted to flirt. 
with the data more. But if I were to sort of give a bit more context on what got my interest to work abroad in general, I think I'm going to start with I am introvert at best. <laughs> and I'm struggling very much with the imposter syndrome, right? In fact, me doing this is a challenge in, in a way um, because I always question my competencies with other people, right? And as cliches um, might sound, I really want to push myself out of what people call the comfort zone, right? Because then when you're in more foreign environment and then you, in a way, uh, unconsciously force yourself to adapt, right? The second, I think, was for me to find a greater purpose. Looking at life and career in general, I think zooming into purpose for me um, helped me to sort of craft a better career path for myself and what um, I sort of advocates of or at least passionate about is building a product that ultimately has a positive impact in people's daily life, right? And hence, you know, fast forward to the at line where look at lines where it's a cornerstone of every other products and services that we have. Yeah, Faisal, thank you for sharing that. It sounds like you're someone who enjoys actually stretching yourself and challenging yourself to, to achieve a lot more. And I, I believe that you are not the only person who who actually has a imposter syndrome. And I think at some point in time, uh, any one of us here might also have uh, this imposter syndrome. At least I can say for myself, when I first started lecturing and teaching UX design, I had a little bit of imposter syndrome as well. So what was the experience like working in Indonesia? I know, I know the language is pretty similar. You're already familiar with Bahasa, Melayu, uh, which is spoken in, in your native country. Did you have difficulty picking up Bahasa uh, Indonesia? Yeah, that's that's a very good observation. That's true. Bahasa Indonesia and Bahasa Malayu or Malaysia is very, you know, they have a lot of comments in terms of their vocabularies. So it wasn't really, a, I would say, tough for me to fit in because of that chat, uh, vocab in a way. And even the so-called the default language whenever you know I go for a meeting that will be in Indonesia but in terms of the discussion or you know in a smaller group we'll sort of use English right I think maybe I could break it into three parts just to from a from a context in my experience in, in Indonesia I think looking at the awareness um, from the design perspective right with the rise tech giants or unicorns, what we call it, right? They have Gojek, Tokopedia, Traveloka, just to name a few. There's a really a growing emphasis um, UX in Indonesia. And these companies sort of serve as a really good example and inspiration for smaller businesses and startups, right? And parts of, I guess, education and training, the demands actually for UX professional um, in Indonesia growing tremendously, right? More institution, more training centers incorporating their UX into their curriculums. And you might find it's a norm in Indonesia generally that, for example, Tokopedia, they would have their own social media of Tokopedia design. And as a matter of fact, they've been very active in, um, I think they have their own programs called Tokopedia Product Design Academy, right? And even a community perspective is, you know, in a vibrant city, uh, as in Jakarta, 
um, is growing as well, right? There's a lot of people, um, well, at least Indonesian designers, that are doing mentorship out there. Budi Tan Rim, um, he led Bukala Park prior that he was with Shopify. I think he is sort of advocates for, for good design. And the other person that I know personally, which is Faris Farhan, um, also um, a strong player um, in design scene in Indonesia. Yeah, that's sort of general um, view of my experience um, in Indonesia. So thank you for sharing that much context on, on the Indonesia design scene. And I'm actually very curious myself because I know there's a lot going on. And I know that Gojek is actually uh, also trying to build a world-class product over there. Together, there there's Tokopedia and all these other guys who are also trying to get listed in the US. So I, I think in terms of skill, they're building something that is actually not just for Indonesians, but trying to launch it uh, globally as well. And can you share a little bit more about challenges working in Indonesia and how, how did you overcome it? How did you adapt to it? Uh, I'm sure the cultures are a little bit different between Indonesia or Malaysia, right? There's two sides of the corporates, right? Or at least looking at the designs in general. Although they do have uh, you know, this big um, unicorns, Tokopedia, Gojek, and a few others. But at the same time, there's also a company that still going the digital transformations, right? They're talking about Agile, talking about UX Lead and what have you. This one bit that I find it quite a challenge was to do the research. So it depends on where the segment that you are in, let's say if you're more into a corporate event, you sort of need to get your buy-in from the stakeholders that, hey, let's do research, let's try to understand more about this segment of users and vice versa, right? And with that being said, then setting up the practice of research also is quite a challenge, um, at least um, from my experience uh, back in Jakarta. Other than that, I think... I won't call it a challenge per se, if I could share a bit more. When we did the research, right, we're, uh, we're trying to redesign our website and uh, there was a language selector in the website, right? You know, the, the, the usual suspect, right? You see Bahasa, English, Chinese, and so forth, right? And what we found was in the language selector, Indonesian actually they would very much prefer to see the word Indonesia. So what that means is when you click on the Chevron, they like to see Bahasa Indonesia. Reason being because they have a sense of a strong pride of their nations. And if you go to Tokopedia, you know, Traveloka and so forth, you get to see a similar things, right? Reason why I brought that up, because if we look at a direct translation Bahasa. Bahasa is actually a language, right? So Bahasa Indonesia is a language of Indonesian. And um, the other part, I think, uh, which was not particularly a challenge, but I find that Indonesia market, they are pretty mature in um, online payment. E-wallet was huge. I could count that, you know, the amount of time that I went to an ATM to withdraw my money because I always use their online, online payments, right? So with that being said, then, you know, the corporates try to venture into that scene, you know, all the banks try to create their e-wallets. And then what happens to the integrator then? There's a lot of integration requires and then uh, a lot of touch point and then hence did more research. 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Faisal. It it sounds to me that the challenges are not so much related to the country, but it's about the maturity of the organization that you're in. And at that point in time, you were in a telco, which is usually most telcos are are slightly behind like the tech startups, right? In terms of the design maturity or even like product building maturity. So that's understandable that you have to kind of hold the hands of some of the stakeholders. And I think what's really exciting and interesting over here is that Indonesia has the fourth largest population in the world. And it's growing. And you mentioned that they're extremely tech savvy. It kind of reminds me of another market, uh, which is China, right, which has their own ecosystem as well. You were previously in Indonesia and you're building for the telecoms industry, which touches many people's lives. Now that you're in Thailand, which is a, a smaller country and you're working for nine, how's the experience different, right? Comparing between Indonesia and, and Thailand? Let me try and use the same structure earlier. I'll try to break it down into the design awareness and then platforms of you know for people to get education and training and then how's the US community like here. I think to start with the awareness, um, Thailand in general, they are still in the what we call digital transformation shift. Right now, there's a huge uh, recognition on the importance of the UX, especially sectors like e-commerce and fintech or finance. Right? And in regards to education and training, it's a little bit of a slower pace, I'll say, You know, if I were to compare with the other South Asia countries. However, there's an increasing number of US courses available out there too, right? Just to name a few, BKK Web, UX AP Hour, that, you know, is a free um, event for you to attend. In Thailand in general, there's there are two prominent tech giants. Um, one is Line <laughs> and second is um, Agoda. So Agoda is actually just uh, based um, opposite of our office. So if I sort of were to summarize into the strength of Thailand, or at least where the designer mindset is, Thailand generally emphasize a lot on data, like a lot on data. They sort of leverage that data to then try to understand and then leverage that data. How can they improve their design, right? Whereas uh, for Indonesia, it's research heavy, right? Um, again, I'm, I'm general, generalized there. Is there anything interesting that you've discovered while working in, in Thailand so far? Because I know Line has... I, I mean, we wouldn't get into personal data and, and the insights of the Line app itself, but like... What what fascinates you about the Thai market, like, and what's what's keeping you there at the moment? Very good question. Let me start by saying that, from my observation, Bangkok, gen, uh, specifically or Thailand in general, they embrace the idea of open culture, right? And it's a vibrant city. And I was getting you know getting late now, and it's a not life in, in Bangkok. It's just another level, right? There's one thing that I've noticed, though. So in terms of how they incorporate user behavior or ties behavior into digital channels. So because of its vibrant, most of the interaction actually happened using stickers, emojis, wherever they chat. For for example, um, let's say if I say, um, thank you, and then they will reply with, you're welcome in a stickers and an emoji, right? It's a, such sort of compliment to their culture in general too. The other thing that I've noticed, particularly on Thai behavior, 
um, let's say if I were to order food from from Line, uh, or we have here Line Man in comparison to our competitors Grab. Uh, when you order, almost most of the time they will respond that, hey, um, I've got your order. And almost every single interaction that they will update you. The other interesting fact that, that I've observed is they have a deep empathy um, for their culture. For example, like banks here, they actually open from 11 a.m. and then they close at 8 p.m. So why is that? Where's that empathy elements come from? Is usually Thai people they are very busy in the morning and afternoon. From my country, like Malaysia, right, we open at nine and then close at at four or five, right, and then by the time we're trying to you know go to the banks and then it's already closed, right. Um, so I think that's a a really nice um, touch in terms of being empathetic um, towards their people and also try to really inject their culture into digital channels. It sounds like a very friendly culture, and it's very known for uh, from from a tourism perspective. It's one of the most hospitable uh, cultures in the world, which is why people enjoy visiting Thailand in islands such as Phuket, for example, even Chiang Mai. Uh, lots of digital nomads love going there. As you were speaking about this, I kind of noticed something. Um, the the company you work for. Uh, which is line is actually from Korea, and I notice uh, there seems to be quite a number of Chinese companies or, or Korean companies expanding their presence in Southeast Asia, right? Like in in Singapore, for example, we have ByteDance and we have a few other uh, Chinese companies, and and then in Korea we uh, there's also line over here in Singapore, although it's not as popular as uh, as it is in Thailand. Um, And I'm kind of kind of relating it back to the past where there, there was like physical goods, and they were actually sort of being exported to uh, countries in Southeast Asia, like uh, like your Samsung, your LG, uh, and all these other brands. I'm I'm kind of curious from your perspective, coming from Malaysia, working in Thailand, working in Indonesia, how do you see the future of Products that are built from the ground up from Southeast Asia. What are your thoughts? That's a big question. Um, if I were to to look at from innovation perspective and then adoption on the technology, I think Thailand is showing a great interest, and even the fact that they are in the G20, what we call this gang, right, uh, with the other giant economy country. There's definitely uh, more investment um, towards. Digital, particularly here in Thailand, um, reason being, I think um, they're trying to sort of create a hub for the digital, where try to attract more um, investors in, and then also by hiring a a more what we call the expatriate, right? Um, similar for me, right? Because they wanted to bring a different spice and different flavors to to the company in general, right? So. Innovation perspective, I think Thailand, I think they are focusing more towards digital touchpoint rather than the physical um, aspect of it. For example, the hardware stuff. Right, I'm not saying they're not, but if you look at the design specifically, 
there's almost an everyday experiment that going on with their design, right? If you're looking at Agoda specifically, they love A-B testing, right? Uh, so that's innovation, right? And then the other part was on, uh, I, I guess, the, the talents in general, right? Um, not just Thailand, I would say um, even Asia in general, right? We have a lot of promising talents that um, enable then us to invite more investors in um, to the country, right? Malaysia, Singapore, and so forth. I hope I answered your question there. I think you did. I mean, it's great that you brought up Agoda, right? Agoda was actually, um, although they were founded by foreigners, they have actually been headquarters in Thailand for quite a number of years and uh, was subsequently acquired by Booking.com. So they are an international website. They are an international product. And, and we see that uh, as an example of having the right infrastructure and talent we have Grab. Uh, Grab's incredibly focused on Southeast Asia and the region itself. They have no ambition to go where Uber is competing, but they're also trying to their best to build a global product and a world-class product as much as possible. So I, I definitely agree with you on the point that there is actually the talent and that potential to build global products. We just haven't seen quite a number of people do that uh, at scale. Uh, at least on the consumer side, but on the B two B side, I I think there that we have several SaaS and B two B startups that actually serve global clientele, whether it's in Malaysia, whether it's in Singapore, whether it's in uh, Indonesia, for example. What's sort of your play over here? Like, do you intend to to work overseas as long as possible, or do you intend to kind of like go back to Malaysia and yeah, what what's what's kind of like your intention in the next couple of years if you have planned so far? <laughs> I hope my manager is not in the room. Um, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm start toying with the idea of uh, working abroad after my tenure with DG. Right, uh, for those who don't know, um, DG is one of the prominent telco in Malaysia. And at that time, I remember I was targeting more towards the Europe and the Western country. I remember that I applied a few and managed to get at least one verbal offer. But then, to make a long story short, I've, uh, you know, there's one recruiter that, hey, Faisal, what do you think about this opportunity in Jakarta? I thought, huh, that's interesting, right? So uh, I said interesting because um, I'm at the same time, if, if I were to think about European or Western country, that's that's a long shot and also that's far from my home country, right? So I thought, oh, Indonesia would be a great stepping stone for me, right? And yeah, and then 2019, I joined um, and based in Jakarta. And then a couple of years after, and then COVID hits, unfortunately, then I had to, you know, come back to Malaysia and then join um, SIG, uh, that owns JobStreet and JobsDB. And there's always this fire in me that, I don't think that my journey has ended yet, right? So then I start telling the idea, all right, so let's hit back road, right? And um, somehow still here in abroad, 
um, I'm still there's this fire in me that I want to continue challenge myself. And you know, we talked earlier about imposter syndrome and the, the introvert in me, right? And just want to see how far that I can go and to to certain extent to prove you know people who have doubts about design as a career in general, right? That design cannot make you know, a sustainable life in general or kind of make a good money. Uh, there's no um, higher prospect and what have you. I'm fully with you over there because I, I was I also went to design school and, and I know at that point in time when I signed up for design school, everyone was like looking at me like, Dylan, there's no, there's no future in design. <laughs> so like, yo, I don't know why you're doing that. Like, why, why don't you sign up and be an engineer? So <laughs> I was like, no way. But I, I totally get it. And I also see that uh, it's very promising to to see that a lot of companies are coming over uh, or are setting are being set up uh, or are unicorns, right? And they're hiring aggressively locally and they're building like global products uh, that they're, they're putting their product building functions in Southeast Asia, which is actually really, really exciting uh, because that's where the population growth is going to be. That's where uh, a lot of the consumers and customers are actually going to become middle class um, in in the next couple of years we're going to see a lot of people rise in terms of prosperity uh, from a gdp uh, basis so it's really really exciting to see what's going to happen and i know this is like a new frontier for for you as well as for many of our listeners as well and which is why it's nice to to hear from the ground like what you are seeing what you are experiencing do you have any advice for anyone who is looking to work in Southeast Asia, right? And maybe is offered an opportunity to come to Southeast Asia, to work in Southeast Asia. What, uh, what are your tips? What are your advice as a foreigner trying to work in another culture? Let me share the tough part first. I think the tough part in working abroad generally is um, sometimes it can be emotionally exhausting every single day, right? The moment you move, you're basically um, living a double life, right? You you basically technically put your your life on pause in your hometown, right? Or your your home country. Um, but obviously, you feel blessed with the life that you have, but you also you know have this sense of you know homesick, right? But in regards to your question, I think there's one competency actually that I was struggling a couple of years back, which is the ability to story tell. In order for you to push yourself to being able to tell a story from, let's say, from your design, right, uh, which is very important, is to push out the boundaries, right, and look at what's possible out there. And by me pushing myself, working abroad, unconsciously and pushing myself to be able to craft a better story for my profile and also apply those in um, my work streams, right? And in regards to advice to those who wants to work abroad, there's a lot of uh, aspect that you need to, to look up for, right? For example, this probably will sound a bit bad, but it's important to prioritize financial over everything else. Right. Study and do the benchmarking study about what the potential salary will look like. Right. Um, on top of that, you need to consider the tax deduction too. Right. 
And for me, living in Malaysia, where in Malaysia I do have the uh, EPF, um, it's what we call Employer Provident Fund. But now me working in Thailand and then the percentage of that is different, right? You also need to think about the working visa arrangement, right? Are you being sponsored or do you need to fork out money for yourself to apply those visas? Um, healthcare is another thing, right? The other big ones, I think, is the role um, aspect, right? Either it's contract or permanent um, employment terms, right? And for me, I would always advocate for if you want to work abroad, find this permanent role. Right? I think uh, you put a lot of risk um, in, in your decision, right? Um, of course, there's another thing maybe we can talk about it later, accommodation, general um, expenses, um, and all those things, right? So this is sort of like a general steps. Other than that, it will be, um, I would understand if you right now wonder, will I make a right decision to move abroad, right? And I question myself many times. And um, I've bounced the idea with my wife many times too before, all right, let's go to Jakarta, right? So have that conversation with your family members and then um, at the end, go in and have fun, right? I think that's the most important thing. Thank you for the reminders to actually take care of your own logistics and finances uh, before you do move abroad. And talking about that, you know, you're, you were given offers in both Indonesia and Thailand. How did you end up getting these um, gigs? You know, did someone come to you? Did you apply for them? What, what was the process uh, for you to lend a role overseas? I'm glad that you asked that question uh, because because I feel like a deja vu. Um, I think it was last week I had a a chat with my mentees, and she asked me about Faisal. Can you tell me a secret? How how did you get the opportunities or or the offer to work abroad? Right, and my answer was fairly similar with everyone else's. Um, I go to you know to to LinkedIn. Um, I browse the career website. You know the traditional way, right? But in regards to Indonesia, um, actually, I was uh, uh, reached out um, from a recruiter that was from Singapore. And then you know, gave me a call, and then I remember interviews and negotiations and what have you. That took me about I think it was three months or, or less. Um, in regards for me here at Line. Uh, <laughs> I send out the application via their direct website and then I've only got response a month later. So what I'm trying to say here is uh, there's no secret, um, at least from my experience, um, um, yes, to a certain extent that network networking might help, n- know people here and there. But for me, I go the, the traditional way. And prior, where we talk this offline, um, prior that um, I've got the offer from line, I've actually got the offer at Singapore. But then, you know, I, I see the sort of missions at line resonates with me a little bit more. So hence. Well, fun fact is that Bangkok has some of the... <laughs> Uh, most number of Michelin star restaurants. Not that, not that I'm <laughs> suggesting that you're eating there every day, but I mean, you chose you chose good food as well, right? Like. <laughs> mm. 
yeah, Bangkok. Bangkok has a lot, a lot of good food, fresh ingredients. Uh, so I'm, I don't, I don't blame you for choosing Bangkok over Singapore. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more, right, about salaries as well, because if you chose Singapore, uh, maybe the salary is a little bit different. The, the tax will be a little bit different. So, and Thailand has a different tax structure, has a probably a different um, salary as well. So, how do you make sure you you negotiate and and got the best offer that you can possibly get. How did you know? What tips do you have to offer to our listeners over here? Well, I, I could sense that we might need um, another hour. Let, let me try and build a bit of context and then I'll get to, to the question, right? Um, and actually, let me pull out some, some data to share with everyone and we'll make sure that I share the right data. Um, so one of the tips is to understand your market value, right? So there's a lot of channels out there. Um, um, for example, uh, there's this uh, self-reported platform called designpay.asia, which is actually co-founded by Jonathan, uh, the Singaporean. Um, Hayes is, you know, the recruiters. Um, there's another Cox agency, uh, which is they are quite um, advocates uh, or at least advocating in Southeast Asia. Um, salary benchmarking. So, of course, there's another more validated data, which is levels.fii, right? So, based on data from designpay.asia, actually almost 40% of the respondent did not negotiate their salary, while 61% do not agree that they compensated fairly, right? And 33% also unsure about their awareness on the market rate for their salary, right? For their level, right? So um, here I have in handy uh, the salary benchmark just to save everyone's time. Let me try and break it into four countries, right? Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Thailand. And then I'll break it into median and high salary, right? Let's start with Singapore. Um, so the median salary for Singapore for the UX design is um, 84,000 um, Singapore dollars. That's annually, right? That's equivalent about 5,100 US dollars. Or if, you know, if we have uh, Malaysians folks in, in the core, that's 24-ish thousand, right? And the, on the high side, around 20,000 uh, monthly uh, that's equivalent to 15,000 US dollars or 70,000 ringgit, right? So that's Singapore. For Malaysia, the median is about 7,000 ringgit or 1,500 US dollars. And on the high side, it could be about 30 to 40,000 um, ringgit per month or 6,300 um, US dollars. Right? For Indonesia, the median um, is about 12.5 million rupiah. Uh, that's monthly and equivalent to 800 um, US dollars. The high is about 115 million. That's about 7,400 US dollars. And for Thailand, the median is about 85,000 monthly or equivalent to 2,400 US dollars. And for high is about 210 million or equivalent to 5,800. So that's sort of the, the benchmarking that was done by, you know, I tried to assemble from different sources. Um, you might want to, to check out um, themselves out there. With that context, right? Now I think we try to dive in a little bit about how do we negotiate in a way, isn't it? 
Yeah, while you're thinking about that, I just want to summarize a few things uh, for our listeners. Uh, median is usually the, the most commonly reported figure. It's not an average of the numbers, right? So it's not the mean, but rather median is uh, in statistics is actually the most commonly reported uh, number uh, that is highest occurring. So based on what Faisal was actually saying, uh, he's saying Singapore has the highest of all, all the four countries, but it also means that Malaysia's figures are actually about uh, one third of Singapore. And it sounds like in Thailand and in Indonesia, it's quite competitive to Singapore's figures as well. Uh, they're not too far behind. Uh, but we also have to bear in mind that such reports are usually filled up by people who who may be expats, right? So they might be drawing slightly, slightly more salary than the local uh, population itself. So the focus of this uh, design pay is still very much on the Singapore and the Malaysia market, uh, just to give additional context. But yeah, like tell us how how can we get more money out of our <laughs> our salary negotiation? All right, I think first and foremost, let me invite everyone's in the audience or to the listener, right, to change your perspective on how you view your career in general, right? Um, I want you to start think your career as a business. When your mindset about owning and running or building a business, you definitely want to maximize your number, right? Your financial um, and in business, of course, you want to make sure that your cash flow, revenue, profit, you know, remain increasing over over the time, right? So you don't want to stay stagnant and very little um, to no profit, right? So let me start by saying that to understand a typical components in the composition, right? So one is a base salary or a monthly salary. Um, so let's say if we have an audience from Western or European, um, I think they negotiate in annual basis. Second is allowances. The third is bonus. Fourth is um, sign-on bonus. And fifth, if you want to work abroad, you can actually negotiate for relocation package, right? Either that's into utilities, accommodation. And number six, I think, is... Uh, which is not more much popular in Southeast Asia, which is equity based or RSA use. Um, I think it stands for restricted stock units, right? But it's more common in the Western and European. Before you dive in into how to negotiate, right? I think for me, um, you need to understand your value narrative, right? First, you need to know which skill sets of yours that you want to flaunt deeper when you go into that interviews, right? Try to really understand what the problem that trying, the company trying to solve by hiring you. Throughout that interview, they mentioned about, oh, we have a little bit of gap in research. Then once you understand that is the gap, so that's where you inject your value narrative, right? And the second is understand your personas. To those who are designers, I think it's, it's not a, it's a normal for us to understand, you know, the double diamond and the first part of the diamond is about discovery, understand your users, right? Similar to, you know, when you approach and negotiating your salary too, right? Understand your personas. And here's a newsflash. The motivation of the personas essentially are similar, right? Which is uh, they're trying to close the vacancy, but their motivation might be different. So there are four main player or the personas, which is one recruiter. So recruiter, usually they're trying to identify and attract potential candidates um, for open positions. 
Second is talent acquisitions. Right? Um, talent acquisitions usually is about more strategic approach in identifying, attracting, um, and onboarding top talents, right? And the third is human resource, which is to manage overall employees' experience and ensure that, that we onboard the right people. And the last one, which is a hiring manager, right? The person who will be the direct lead of the new hire or the person who actually requested for that position, right? So once you understand the personas, then you understand their needs, you understand their motivation, then it'll be much easier for you to craft your angle on, all right, which of the value narrative that I could inject to my hiring manager, which of the my value that I could illustrate better so, uh, to talent acquisition so that they can empathize with me a bit more. And third is understand your market value. I think we, we covered that earlier. I think that's important. Many are actually still do not do them benchmarking studies um, in general. And the fourth one, um, this is where it can get a little bit more detailed on how would you maximize or get the maximum number on the table, right? So first is to understand that each company, they has their own structure for the, you know, quote-unquote salary band. So do your study, gauge on the size of the company and their career level. So how I did it usually, uh, let's say your dream job, right, um, to work at one of the FANG or now is known as, what is it? Mama, right? Oh, oh, let me try and use a Southeast Asia uh, company. That let's let's use Grab. So, how would I do it? I'll go to LinkedIn and then I'll try to search for, let's say, product design, and then let's see how many results that would appear. And then I'll use a second keyword, senior product design, and then I continue to you know principal and staff. So then I map that out, and I could see almost like a a career path, right? And usually when the company has a bit more um, vertical in terms of their career path, then that's a sign that basically they are more willing to pay more money. The second one is understand the value of negotiating and psychology behind it. It is extremely important, right? I think there's a couple of tricks that I could share here with everyone is First and foremost, if you don't negotiate early in your career, there actually there will be a compounding effect, right? Let's say if you were to accept um, a lower pay today, um, it will be drastically decreases your long-term potential earnings. I think that's one, right? And um, second is when you don't negotiate, then you lose a potential earnings by not negotiating. I think that's, that's sort of straightforward, right? So now... Earlier, I mentioned about the value of negotiating and psychology behind it. Trying to visualize this. Let's say you walk to the hardware store and looking for screwdrivers, right? And you saw there are two options, right? Uh, let's say option A is a little bit more cheaper than the option B. So psychologically, you would see that, oh, B could be better, right? Because it's a bit more expensive. It might look, it might um, sturdier, you know, uh, all those things. So there's some really um, a, a, a small details on the psychology behind it, right? And also the third thing is, let's say when you're in the interview and actually the hiring committee would observe how, you, how your negotiation skills like, 
reason being because they're trying to illustrate in their mind that okay, this dude, um, he or she is a good negotiator, right? It might be beneficial actually when you you apply that in a work setting, right? You know, in in a realistic world when you join a team and then you might be dealing with a lot of pushback, pushing your ideas to the tables, stakeholders, and etc. The last points on that psychology, I think, is understand the psychology behind the anchoring, right? There might be a discussion between you and the personas that we talked earlier about, hey, can you tell me about your your salary expectation, right? Or give me a range. The technique of anchoring here is don't mention the smaller amount first, but mention the big amount first, right? For example, hey, I'm looking for $10,000, but I'm open to, you know, um, from 10 to 8,000. So then that's the the anchor, what I mean, um, is you put in the big number first. Um, Maybe I could just give uh, just a two more, Dalen, if that's all right, Um, which is about understanding the reason behind uh, the vacancy. Let's say... um, you try to gauge, right, uh, the company is in a growing state. Let's say if it's startups, which round series they are at, right, a B or C or or even a C, right? Um, and also um, try to gauge on do they actually need a specialist that they are currently lacking, right? Or maybe they want, you know, they make the vacancy available um, is because just simply need to extend the bandwidth. Right, um, understanding the reason behind the vacancy is extremely important because later you can leverage those understanding to negotiate salary. Maybe we can talk a bit more deeper about that. There are so many good tips, Faisal. I didn't know you were like an expert in this, but. <laughs> I run career programs, right, for for UXs, and we actually invite recruiters and and HR people to come and teach our students how to negotiate. And the amount of advice you give is no less than what what they are sharing with my my students. And you you went even deeper. And there was something I picked up that was really really interesting. Other than benchmarking with like say designpay.asia and the fact that you do negotiate because if you don't negotiate, you're leaving money on the table. You said something about value narrative. If I were to ask you, what's your value narrative? Like, can you give me an example of that? Like, I, I suppose you you'll be very familiar with your own value narrative. So can, can you share with us what, what does that look like or what does that sound like? That's a very good question. Actually, I've got that question a lot from my mentees. So... In a real world situation, like when you go for an interview, usually your personas, right? Let's take an example, hiring managers, right? They don't ask, okay, so what is your strength? What is your value, right? So the typical practice is where during that the conversation, they try to analyze your competencies, right? And without you realizing that actually jotting down, or at least from me, right? I jot down, oh, this guy's good in A, B, C, and D. So, you know, to answer your question, I actually don't have my, you know, how would say like a list of my value um, narrative. I think that would happen during the interview in itself. Uh, but for me, again, um, it's um, how would I would sort of develop um, my value narrative is um, actually asking a good 
question during the interview, right? And often I'll say to to my mentees or my junior is, it's all right sometimes to ask your hiring manager, okay, how big is the team or how's the design process like, right? It's all right. But if you want to have that edge, you need to have to ask a little bit more creative question. Um, often I'll give them this three structure of a framework, I call it, right? The three Ps, right? The people, product, and practice. So, for example, in the product, you can ask about when was the last time the team was restructured and what was the motivation and why? And what is the missing piece in terms of people competencies and how can this role help the current people um, set up and ultimately help the products? And you can also ask about, um, could you describe team's current level motivation? Right? And then you can, you know, in terms of the second framework, which is the product, you can ask about how often that the company or the product shifted directions and why. Right? Or the other question you could ask is, if you could share what is the most pricing um, issue with the product at the moment, and you can further ask, what does the North Star of the product look like, right? And the last framework, which is about the practice, how would you describe the level of design maturity at the moment? What are the main gap that you've seen that the team can improve further, right? So by asking all these questions, actually you're portraying your unconsciously, right? I think that's the keywords to unconsciously portraying your value narrative that, oh, this dude is asking different question so then there, there, will, there will be some level of so-called I, I, I hate one to say the word judgment right but there will be some level of judgment where oh this guy is not asking a typical question about how many how big is the team members um how the team being structures today and what have you i think it's really great that you point these out uh and and questions are definitely a really good way to flex your how thoughtful you are as a person, how, how deep you think about the problem. Um, and the questions that you shared are definitely very, very good questions to ask during interviews itself. But I'm also wondering from a positioning perspective, surely, surely you, you are conscious of the fact that you're positioned in a certain way, right? Like, for example, when I was working for Razor, uh, how my friend sold me into Razor was was that she said, hey, like Dalen is one of the few guys who have actually worked in startups and corporates. And, and that's a very unique positioning, like being able to tread between the two. I'm, I'm sure you know yours as well. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like, do you do you mention it like upfront, like as part of your introduction or or do you kind of be a little bit more subtle about it? Yeah, I think uh, a little bit of a combination of both. Although I uh, mentioned earlier that I don't have a list, but usually I would flaunt my value narrative naturally through that conversation with the hiring manager per se. Right? And often I'll say it about, um, again, I break it into three parts, right? People, product, practice. And let's say for me, the product is about how... how um, I have the edge on, um, you know, having the uh, research first mindset and then how can we solve the design or improve the design through research, right, by gathering the necessary insights. And um, the second bit, which is the how would you balance between um, user needs and business needs and then how 
often I would say that how would you measure your design? I think there's a lack still, um, a lack of em- emphasis on looking at the impact um, and how to measure your design in general, right? And then practice-wise, I think um, usually I'll say about how do we create um, a culture where that is not silo, that is more collaborative um, throughout the process. And the third is um, on the people. I think that's where um, I have, um, I would say, have a little bit more, uh, a little bit more edge on. I personally have a, uh, I would consider myself a um, highly empathetic person, um, and it's very important um, to really understand your people. And because for me, uh, people come from different walks of life. And what I mean also by that is, you know, designer A, um, they might be exposed to a different design process that we might not know. Right? Designer B might, you know, have a different um, perspective on how should we get things done too, right? By leveraging those knowledge between our designers, then I could help them map out, um, for instance, our own design process. Hopefully, I, I answer your question on how I would narrate uh, my value. I, I think what I noticed from what you said, Faisal, is actually being hyper aware of how you could be a potential contributor to to whatever they're trying to achieve, right? Like whatever their desire is. And I, I think because of the fact that you're so experienced and that you you understand what good looks like, uh, and because you're aware of that and, and the fact that you're asking all these questions gives the impression subconsciously that, hey, this guy knows what good looks like. And because he knows what good looks like and we are trying to get to good, let's hire him. <laughs> so I, I think I think it's excellent positioning um, without actually, you know, flaunting and saying, hey, you know, I work like 13 years. I have so much experience and 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 stuff like that but you're you're actually flexing your profile through the questions you're asking which which is then helping them realize hey um there are a couple of things we haven't quite figured out <laughs> and and through that they're like okay let's let's kind of like have a deeper discussion uh with Faisal to to understand a little bit more and i think it's excellent because especially if you're applying for roles to be a UX manager level and above. Um, these are really excellent questions to ask. Um, and negotiation is also an excellent skill to flex, as you as you mentioned earlier. But would you recommend the same approach if you're just trying to enter the industry, you're just trying to get in uh, at the start? Would you recommend this approach of like asking really deep questions, really smart questions to, to differentiate yourself? Like, would you be impressed as a hiring manager if someone asked you that? Um, yes. Why I'm saying yes, because last two weeks, um, I had, um, you know, I checked with my mentees, which is, um, she's, um, uh, she's Thai and then looking out for a job. And, um, you know, I helped her to craft her, pro, you know, resume and portfolios, right? So during that conversation, um, she asked me a question that I thought, ah, oh, so let me give you the context, right? That she is a, what do you call this? A fresh um, designer, um, has less than one year experience, right? But she asked me about um, how do we measure the design? And then she mentioned, she asked me about 
um, how do we find a balance between user needs and business needs? Um, you know, all those things. And then it got me thinking, if I were, you know, to look back, you know, if I were in her shoes a couple of years back, um, I don't think I would ask that questions because I thought um, I would care too much on question about user flow, question about how big is the design team and what have you. There's one true story. When I was at Seek, we trying to hire a product designer and um, and in the process, um, I was told by my manager that, hey, dude, uh, there's one guy, we put him in KIV, would you like to have a look? And I said, sure. And then um, look at the profile and then parallel to that, you know, still continuing for the talent, searching for the talent. To make the long story short, actually that dude approached me in LinkedIn that, hey, you know, starting to introduce himself. And then and then it sparked my interest about him. And he, I remember he voluntarily asked me politely, hey Faisal, do you have half an hour, whenever, I'd like to show you some of my work. Right. And um, again, to make the long story short, we sort of arrange a offline, not offline, like um, yeah, I would say offline interview, um, very casual one, and then you walked me through, and you know, then that's a reflection also of a grit that he really demonstrated that I really want that job, and I can demonstrate my my patient. And keep in mind, he has um, less than I think less than three years or two years of experience, right? But the levels of um, passion and, again, the grit that he displayed, it sort of wowed me. And um, surprise, surprise, uh, yeah, I hired him and the team loved loved him and we still are sick. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I... I'm even thinking, like, based on what you shared today, I'm also learning that myself. Like, it's ultra competitive to to be a UX designer and break into the tech industry today, right? More than ever uh, since our time, <laughs> uh, since the time we joined uh, the tech industry. So the fact that a lot of people are are highlighting exactly what their value proposition is or their positioning is and they're just putting it up front um that's that's one way to sell yourself but you also helped me realize that another way of actually telling others your value proposition or your positioning or your value narrative as you call it um is to ask really really smart questions that people don't don't ask and to and to and to not be so much of a hot sell that you it's like you're desperate for a job, right? It's more like, hey, let's let's have a conversation. Let's have an exploration. Let's try and see whether that's a possibility over there. Um, and it's it's kind of a much softer approach. Uh, and it's, it's less of a hard sell. Um, I don't know if you get requests like that, Faisal, but, you know, like sometimes people try to say, hey, you know, like, are you guys... Uh, is line hiring, for example, how how do you feel about those those messages and and those requests? Like you know, like can you take a look at my portfolio, for example? I don't mind at all. As a matter of fact, um, I think you know the traditional cold email, right? Cold mail someone. Um, I think it still works in in this these days. 
you know, we have a lot of apps that we need to juggle in between. And then wouldn't it be nice if, you know, one day I could get one message from LinkedIn that, hey, Faisal, um, you know, basically he or she expressed um, interest to join line, for example, right? I think, again, that just showed um, greed um, in, um, in his or his profile, right? Um, at line, yeah, um, specifically at line right now, we are trying to stabilize our team at the moment. Um, but, you know, I'm sure sooner or later we'll be opening a lot, uh, a lot more uh, uh, vacancies. So we've, we've gotten to the end of the session and uh, we, we weren't able to dive too deep on UX and its subconscious impact. And I'm, uh, I'm not going to ask you to, but I'm just wondering if you have any um, parting advice, if you have any, uh, anything else you want to share with our audience to, uh, today to wrap up the entire session, yeah, in case you didn't cover any of them. Let me try quickly address on the um, the second topic. I think it was right uh, to think deeper about user experience and its subconscious impact. Right. So, if there's a formula, I think how do you create a delightful experience for your users is about how do you think big plus think deep plus subconscious impact equivalent to to delight. Right. So, let me quickly touch on uh, what does. The, does the think big means, right? Think big means um, you adopting a holistic approach to design is not just about how the products look like or the the actions that user might take. It's about understanding and shaping deeper psychological journey um, that user undergoes while interacting with your products, right? And if you go into the second, which is a think deeper, again, it's, there's more to the UX than just the surface level interactions on the design elements, right? Um, the most important is, is involve emotions and feelings, right? Um, and a third, which is a subconscious impact, um, I probably won't go through um, all the elements. I think there's four main elements that you can keep in mind, which is one is emotions and feeling. Second is um, the memory. Uh, what do users remember about the experience? Um, third, on behavioral changes, um, and fourth, with cognitive load, right? Um, overly complex design can overwhelm users. So if you look at that formula, think big plus, think deep, and then plus subconscious impact, eventually you could um, delight your users. And um, if I could just share a very short story on what I mean by that subconscious impact, for example, you know Netflix, right? They, I'm a big fan of the American TV show Friends, right? So back in 2015, I think it was, right? Um, the way, you know, if you binge watch TV show Friends, where let's say if you're watching through your laptop or PC, then during the intro, you would click or tap on the arrow next, 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 right? Because you want to jump the intros, right? And Netflix actually noticed that. And what they did later, they brainstormed about, hey, what can we do about this behavior from our users, right? And to make a long story short, then hence the birth of, you know, I think it's called Skip Intro now, right? So what, what are these key takeaways, right? Designing experience is not just about the best user flow that you could ever create or how many screens that you're able to remove, right? But by going big and deep uh, and do the empathy mapping, 
where you can mark down what user feel, user think, user act, and then you sort of map that on your user journey. And then uh, that's where you could, um, you know, catch um, those smaller details, uh, such as the story behind Netflix, um, skipping through button. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Faisal. And I'm sure you appro- you approach job hunting, and just to round up our discussion, um, job hunting and the experience of actually presenting yourself as a candidate to the hiring manager, to the recruiter, or to anyone you interact with the very same way, right? Not just thinking about the content you're sharing, but also how what is the impression and what is the what is the memory and what is the emotion you want that person to leave with and um and 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 that's also how you differentiate uh yourself as a candidate aside from uh, other people um do you have any final tips or any additional things you want to cover on on that and when it comes to getting a job overseas or when it comes to getting a job or breaking into the industry if there isn't it's fine because because we we've covered quite a lot today as <laughs> okay well. um yeah, um, yeah. I was about to say that um, I think there's a lot of um, candidates out there or designers um, in general still struggling on, or at least often, I've heard a question, um, Faisal, I've often heard a question about uh, from the recruiters to, you know, they ask me about my current salary right, or my current pay slip right, and or what is your expected salary and how should I respond to that, right? Maybe, you know, um, we might need another hour just to talk about that and I could share scripts um, and what have you. But the general um, tips that I would say is um, when, uh, when it comes to salary um, is first to deflect, right? Before discussing salary, what you can say is, I like to get a better understanding on the opportunities and growth opportunities for this position. Can you tell me more about that? And the second is you can express your flexibility, right? I'm flexible when it comes to composition, uh, more interested in finding positions that finding good fits. Um, and third, you can also say um, that you sort of indicate that you're in early stage um, in your salary research, and it's okay to do that, right? Um, and maybe to sort of wrap up the salary topic, I think I could share um, just a quick common mistake. Um, I think that would be helpful for everyone is don't just pull out a random number out of nowhere. Um, I think that's first. Um, second is, which is I admit I uh, did in the past, being too detailed on the number, right? Hey, I'm looking for $9,987, right? Uh, they just create more headache for, for you know, for, for the finance people and what have you, right? And the third is um, not understanding on all available components in negotiation that we covered earlier, right? There's base salary, there's relocations and what have you. And last two years, um, mm, too quick to settle when it comes to selling negotiation, right? Hey, Faisal, this is an offer for you. And they will say, oh, okay, right? So um, last bit, I would say, don't do the knee-jerk reaction when reacting to the lower offer, right? Don't, uh, I have this one, well, what do you call this? I couldn't find the words for it, right? But often I'll, I'll hear from people that say, oh, Faisal, um, I need more money because I need to pay the rent, the gas, food, 
Um, I'm not saying that it's a wrong thing to say, but you know, going back to what I said earlier, right? Understand your value narrative, markets, and etc. Then you can leverage those um, to counter the negotiation part. Yeah, and I think one of the things you made me realize uh, today is actually that it's so much deeper than just stating a number when you're negotiating your salary. That's that's so much more. Uh, and there's so many other ways you can present yourself as a strong candidate and a different candidate um, from other people. If you ask the right questions, if you also be able to kind of like think about the kind of impression that you're giving your hiring manager and the interviewer. So thank you so much for what you shared tonight. And um, I, I see that you're also a mentor on ADP list. Um, are you still available to and, and open to mentoring more more people? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, feel free head down to my profile and then yeah, it will be interesting to to have a chat with you guys. And I could actually share what are the counter and how's this script look like if you're looking to negotiate a salary. And today I realized that Faisal is actually a master negotiator. <laughs> That's as good as any recruiter that we work with. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll, uh, we'll I'll, I'll definitely encourage you to share more about that uh, on your own LinkedIn profile, and you can follow um, Faisal uh, on LinkedIn. You just have to search his name uh, I K R A M uh, F A I D Z A L on LinkedIn, and you'll be able to at him uh, so thank you so much Faisal for coming to our session today and I wish you all the best in your work at Line and uh, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with our audience oh thank you again for having me as well it's lovely to to chat with you and then to, um, to share uh, bits here and there with everyone thank you and sabadika all right everyone have a good day ahead and I wish you very very well and see you next month in our next session for working in UX design. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please let me know what you think. Get in touch with me over email at mail at curiouscore.com. I would love to hear from you. Do also check out our previous interviews and other free resources at curiouscore.com. And until next time, I'll see you on the next episode. Take care and keep leaning into change.